holiday season, it's also just a little stressful, isn't it? Can, can, we just, can we just be honest about it? It's a little stressful because you have all the shopping to do, and if you shop actually in stores and not online, that's not always fun, right? So shopping, uh, there's baking and cooking and that kind of thing. Uh, I've already put my order into my wife for the Christmas cookies that I want. So, and um, if you're looking at me funny, like, well, you've got two hands, not in the kitchen, I don't. In fact, most of the time when I'm in there, Lisa's like, get out. <laughs> Which is what I wanted in the first place, right? <clears throat> so I have my Christmas. So you got cooking coming up, and then, and then um, you also have, uh, oh, school events, right? There's just all kinds of events that are going on for school and, and you know, church too, and there's parties, and that's, that's really important. And family drama. No, never. Not in my house. Mm, okay, right? Family drama. It, it's true. The holidays have this knack for surfacing and resurfacing family tension. It just, it just happens. You get people and with high expectations in the same house, in the same room, the same time of year, and sometimes those tensions start bubbling up over and over again. And they can range from you know, a variety of different things, from the silly, like Aunt Mabel's eye-rolling fruitcake, fruitcake, you know, kind of a thing where you just roll your eyes like, okay, we're going to do this again, okay, to the awkward, she's wearing that sweater, <laughs> which is really funny, because nowadays this whole thing is wearing the ugly Christmas sweater, which back in the 80s, when I was in high school, we just called sweaters. The saying, maybe uh, for, for other people it's painful, like Uncle Ed's ability to basically offend everybody in the room before the night's over, right? People have that going on. And, and, and then there's also the mysterious one, like references to Aunt Phyllis's past quote-unquote mistake, although nobody really knows what that is. Or if they do, they're not talking about it. And those kinds of tensions begin to, to bubble up. And so we've started this new series today called Family Christmas. And the tagline is, every family has issues. Did you know that? Including yours? The question is not, is not whether you, you know, if you have crazy in your family. The question is, to what level or degree is your cray-cray? Because -cray? <laughs> everybody has it. It's just the level and uh, this time of year brings it out, and it, it's true. You have outlaws among the in-laws. But don't fret too much, because even Jesus' family had its share of issues. And we get a glimpse of this uh, in Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there with me. I'll have most of it up on the screen, but if, uh, if you do it old school and bring your your page turner, or if you want to plug it into your iPhone or iPad, that's cool. We're in Matthew chapter 1, and then we're going to be uh, somewhere else too, but I want to start in Matthew chapter, chapter 1. Matthew, the author, is writing his book um, to a group of skeptical Jews. And keep this in mind. The audience is very important here. So we know that his, his gospel, his, his work, this book with his, that bears his name, 
has a very Jewish flavor to it. And because he's trying to appeal and give the message of Jesus to a group of Jewish people. So he, he has to communicate on that level. So we find a lot of Judaism inside of this book. But they're also skeptical, and, and what he does is actually quite brilliant. He parallels much of Israel's ancient history with the story of Jesus. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, today. So let's go into the story and see what Jesus' family might be able to teach about us in, in, our, own, in our own family. So Matthew chapter 1 starts, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this is very important because Matthew needs to set the Messiah up in a particular way. First of all, he's got to be Jewish. So that's why he, he references Abraham. Abraham is the father of the entire Jewish nation. But he also has to be royal because of certain prophecies. And so he's the son of David, the greatest king of Israel. Okay? So his intentions are pretty clear here. He is trying to set Jesus up in a particular way light. So he is Jewish and he's also royal. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Okay, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs of Israel, by the way, also claimed by um, uh, Islam, Abraham, and then Isaac and his brother Esau. Um, most Muslims look to Esau as the progenitor of uh, some of their, of their history. So they all come from roughly the same family here. But Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. Now this is interesting. Because up, on, up until this point, these are all names that we probably heard. Judah, however, is a little bit different. <clears throat> so let's look at um, verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, if you were a first century Jew and you were reading this genealogy, this would have been quite shocking for a couple of reasons. First of all, in Jewish genealogy, you rarely mentioned a female name, like almost never. Ancient Jews were more interested in who's your daddy, not who's your mama, okay? And so when they mentioned a female here, that would have, wait a minute, what is this? Okay, so that's, that's clue number one. He mentions a female name. Secondly, he mentions Perez and Zerah, twins. Or interesting, Judah was mentioned, Judah and his brothers, but in this case, both of them are named. Again, another clue as to what's going on. Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah, which, by the way, are twins, whose mother was Tamar. It's very unusual and quite arresting, especially if you don't necessarily know their story. Who is this part of the family? Well, <clears throat> if you were a first century Jew you would be going through this, and in verse 3, you would have stopped and said, why? Matthew, why would you bring this up? Why on earth would you bring up this story? What are you thinking? Why would you do this? This would have been 
one of those stories that if you were a Jew, you would know it, but it's one of the ones that you didn't want to repeat. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go look at the story. We need to understand this, and you find it in Genesis chapter 38. By the way, full disclosure, today's message is PG-13. We're going to deal with some issues that are PG-13, and and so... uh, Parents, if you have teenagers who are roughly 13 years of age, (laughs) you may have some questions later, but that's okay, because church needs to talk about this. I don't think we talk about this stuff enough. We sanitize the Bible, and we need to deal with the reality of it sometimes. So this story is, uh, is rather obscure, which, by the way, whenever Matthew mentions a female, there's usually a very juicy story behind, okay? So we're gonna keep that in mind as we go through this whole process. Um, over the next few weeks. So Matthew, um, Matthew now leads us to Genesis chapter 38 so that we can understand what, what the fuss is here, okay? So PG-13, Genesis 38, and uh, in the interest of time, because this is a really long story, I'm going to try to tell you a little bit about it, and then we're going to hit some um, biblical references as we go along. So what we learn is about this man named Judah. Judah is the fourth son of um, Jacob. So how many of you remember the song? Um, Father Abraham had many sons, many, many sons. Okay. Okay, somebody's picking it up. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Jacob, his, his uh, grandson, has 12 sons, and uh, they become the tribes of Israel, Judah being one of them. And Judah, the fourth, the fourth son of Jacob, marries a foreign woman. <clears throat> Doesn't marry within... Um, their ethnicity. He marries outside of their ethnicity, a Canaanite, I believe, if I remember correctly. And he has three sons. He has three sons by this woman. First one, uh, his name is Er, E-R, Er. Apparently, he's he's human. Some of you will get that later. (laughs) Okay, Uh, Er. (laughs) Second one is Onan, and the third one is Shelah. So you have have these three sons. And in verse 6, we find this, Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Okay? Now, what's interesting is in the very next verse, uh, verse 7, Er dies. Okay? So Er dies, and Judah, who is the patriarch of this family, has to step in on behalf of Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, that's son number two, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Wait, what? Ladies, how many of you would want that to happen with your brother-in-law? Come on, be honest now, you in church. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, remember that every single time we open the Bible, we are visitors. And it's very similar if we're going to a foreign country because there are different customs, there are different rules for how society works, and we don't necessarily understand them, and we don't necessarily understand why, and this is one of them. This is one of those places where we really need to take a good look because Believe it or not, it's actually not as bad as it sounds. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. I'll let you be the judge of that. When you have a 
a different culture and one like ancient ancient Israel, what you have is a male-dominated patriarchal society. Now, please understand, the Bible is not arguing for that. The Bible is just describing what was, okay? So anybody who tells you that, well, that's the way it's supposed to be, doesn't know what they're talking about. That's not really what, what we're saying here. This is just the way the culture was, and God is moving in and through it, and in some ways, despite it, okay? So keep that in mind. There's no, we're not advocating for this type of culture. It just was. So you have this male-dominated patriarchal uh, society, and women, in this case, um, had various rights, uh, not a whole lot of them, but a few. But the typical path for a woman in that day and age was that she would grow up in her father's household, move to her husband's household, and eventually would be taken care of by her son's household. Okay? There's a distinct movement that a, a typical female would have in this kind of Bedouin sort of patriarchal society. Well, this is quite import, important because a childless widow was doomed to poverty. Who would care for her? Because they weren't allowed to hold jobs, weren't really allowed to hold property by custom. So what happens to a childless widow? It's an important question in that society. <clears throat> and so most of the time, they would end up um, becoming impoverished, and a lot of them would turn to prostitution because they would sell what they had. Does that make sense? Um, by the way, Jesus picks up on this several times in, his God, in, a, in some of his sermons, <clears throat> elevates the level of women in, in the culture. But a childless widow is doomed to poverty and usually prostitution. And so what happened was that over a period of time, um, something called leveret, leveret customs began to bubble up. And the leveret custom went like this, essentially. The next eldest brother would produce a male heir with that female, okay? <clears throat> it, the child would not be his son, it would be his brother's son. Why? So that she would stay inside the family and have somebody to care for her. So while it sounds to us like, whoa, wait, in that day and age, this was incredibly important. It would have been like life insurance. Do you see that? Because of the customs and the laws of the day, having a son was very important. It was kind of like life insurance. Now, later on, this is codified in Jewish law. Here it is in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now, on the one hand, this sounds like, wait, you know, don't have a, a choice in this matter. Well, the actual, what's really happening is here is God is actually caring for women. Now, it may not be the ideal set of circumstances, but within this culture, this was something that nobody else was doing. Do you understand that? 
So God was actually trying to care for women inside of that culture as best as we possibly could, given the circumstances of the time. Again, we're not advocating for that, it's just describing what the culture was. Nod your head so I know you're tracking with me, right? This is, this is really important stuff. This is like life insurance for, for a female. <clears throat> now, the problem in our story, in Genesis chapter 38, is Onan, he didn't want to do that. It was not codified at this point. It was just a custom among Bedouin tribes. He didn't want to do it. And what happens is, it's actually kind of amusing, he dies. So, Er dies, Onan dies. And so, uh, by the way, the text indicates that both Er and Onan did evil, and that's why, that they, why they died. But Judah has to act again. So, here's what he does in verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Shelah, grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. Well, maybe Judah, if you would have raised him right, they wouldn't have to worry about that. But anyway, so Tamar went to live in her father's household. Now, let's hit the pause button again, because this is very important. Very important. Again, by custom, he uses um, the age of Sheila, the number three son, as an excuse to move Tamar out of his household. This would have been not only unusual, but highly disrespectful. Basically, you're returning the goods. I hate to say it that way, but that's kind of what's going on here. So why don't you go live with, why don't you go live with your old man? Very disrespectful. Judah is dodging his family's responsibility. And isn't it interesting how apples don't fall too far from trees? Right? So there's, there's something that's going on inside of this, this family. Very disrespectful, very shameful practice that he did. Now, Tamar is a very clever young lady. Tamar is perceptive. She understands the politics. She knows what's going on here. She, she sees what's, what's happening. And, and then she's got to be asking some questions. What if her father dies too? What, what happens then? She can't marry anyone else because she's still part of Judah's family, technically speaking, legally speaking. And so what she does is she takes matters into her own hands. She's kind of fed up with Judah and his process, so she's going to take matter into her own hands. So let's look at verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, Tamar took off her widow's clothes. Remember, she's at her dad's house covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Oh, there's another part of the story. So Judah is not only dodging his responsibility to her, he's also sheltering son number three from fulfilling his duty as a brother-in-law. Do you see where this is going, right? So what does she do? She disguises herself, puts on a veil. By the way, do you know who puts on veils? Prostitutes. She has deliberately disguised herself as such in this particular part of the world at that particular time. So, <laughs> verse 15, let's go on. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So she's sitting at the entrance of the city where he's going. 
and he sees her. And by the way, in the very next verse, he propositions her. <clears throat> but what does this say about Judah's character? Now, in his defense, you need to understand that it was not uncommon for Canaanite women to actually serve, married or unmarried, to serve as temple prostitutes. Okay, so that does happen. Um, so this would have, um, this would not have been unusual, but Judah had also been recently widowed. Okay, his wife had passed away. So we've got some nuances here where it wouldn't have been, you know, too uncommon for this. But my question is, is that, okay, if he eventually gets intimate with her, how is he not going to know? That's just weird to me. Anyway, another part of the story. So what we find then is he propositions her and they negotiate. They have a negotiation. Well, what are you going to pay me? And he's going to pay her a goat, which apparently was a going rate for <clears throat> an encounter, <laughs> right? That was a goat. Now, here's the interesting thing, and I, I find that Tamar is just very, very shrewd here. She goes, well, how, I, how do I know you're going to pay that? How do I know that you're going to pay that? I want some collateral. You know, give me a pledge, some collateral, so that I know that you're eventually going to pay me for <clears throat> this encounter. So he does something interesting. He hands her something called a seal and a cord in his staff. Now, I was trying to come up with a good way of illustrating this, but essentially a seal and a cord showed his legal authority to make um, certain commitments on behalf of his family. He could not transact business without the seal and the cord, okay? They were implements of business transactions. His staff was actually... Um, a symbol of his authority. Not just the legal, but his authority and his trade. He was a shepherd by trade. All of the sons at that time, wealth was measured in obviously goats, right? That was the currency that was being used. And so he has practical authority in his staff, he has legal authority in his seal and his cord, and he hands them off to a prostitute basically his ability to do business on behalf of his family. That's kind of important, right? Be very, very careful of what an uncommitted encounter will cost you. Just saying. Now, after that, uh, we get some PG-13 stuff going on, <laughs> okay? And what happens is, the result is that Tamar is pregnant by her father-in-law. Now, Judah um, attempts to actually pay his debt because he needs to reacquire his, his, uh, his legal authority and his practical authority. And so he sends a servant with a goat to pay her, but the girl has disappeared without a trace. Cue music, bum, bum, bum. disappears without a trace. And so we find in the story that a period of time goes by. Here it is in verse 24. About three months later, Judah is told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Because at month three, you get the baby bump, right? Eventually, they, people realize she's going to have a baby. What does Judah say? Bring her out and have her burned to death. <laughs> wow. 
which I find kind of interesting. I wasn't able to track anything specifically down, but my understanding was in that day and age, stoning was the preferred method of, of execution, but in this case, he wanted her burned to death. Why? Because he has basic, she has basically uh, brought shame to his family because she's technically part of his family, even though she's living in her father's house. You see the double standard that's going on here? Very interesting. Despite his disrespect and irresponsibility, he's incensed, and, acu- and she's accused of prostitution. But Tamar's got leverage. Right? See where this is going. Here it is in verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Oh, yeah, who's got who over the barrel now, right? Very interesting. Yeah, verse 26. Do I have 26? Yes, I do. Okay, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. Judas caught twice, once for his relationship with a prostitute. Apparently, what's good for the goose and good for the gander are two different things. And he's caught twice for putting his daughter-in-law in such a position in the first place. And she catches him. You want to talk about red-handed. Oh, boy. This is going to go public. Big deal. One of the things I noticed, though, at least Judah recognized um, what he had done and he owned up to it. So they have twins. And they become part of Jesus' family tree. This shameful, shameful story becomes part of the family tree that Matthew chooses to talk about. Isn't that interesting? Because he could have glossed over this one. He could have just simply said Judah and then talked about Perez and gone on. But he stops and he says, no, Judah, Perez, Zira, and Tamar. And brings up all of these issues. <laughs> and you thought your family was weird. You know, maybe somewhere in your family's history, somebody did something that they shouldn't have done. And maybe, uh, maybe that side of your family, or maybe it's your side of the family, has actually lived with that stigma for a long period of time. There's whispers and pieces of information, and you're not exactly sure who did exactly what, but you know it was looked down upon, and everybody knows it. And maybe certain segments of your family are treated differently than others. They don't quite get the same gifts at Christmas time. They don't get the same invites. Kind of left alone. You're in good company because Jesus had that too. I want you to think about that for a moment. Two thoughts. Because of Jesus, your past and your family's past does not determine your future. That sounds like good news to me. And the second thought is, 
God uses messed up, mixed up, dysfunctional families to move the kingdom forward. Even yours. And that sounds like good news to me too. And so as you begin this holiday season, you know what? There might be tension. There might be some pain. But I want you to remember that you're still loved because of the reason why we're waiting. And we're waiting for Jesus. And, and Jesus changes everything. He came for you and his family is more screwed up than yours. And I hope that that fills you with a certain amount of encouragement, a certain amount of, of joy, a certain amount of hope that maybe this year it's not going to be quite as you know, dysfunctional. You know, putting the fun back in dysfunctional. Right? <laughs> maybe it won't be like that this year. 